0: Today is the third Sunday in Easter. Uh, always during the Easter season, I'm reminded of a, a church that I once served and I, I don't recall exactly how the conversation arose in session, but one of the elders expressed uh, a kind of frustration, I mean, not uh, earth-shaking, but he said, you know, at Christmas time, we get all those weeks, we get, you know, about four or five weeks to sing all of our favorite Christmas songs, but Easter comes and it's all over in one day and there's all those wonderful Easter hymns and, and we don't get to sing them all and it's so frustrating. And I said, well, you know, in, in the church calendar, of course it wasn't, obviously it wasn't a church big into the church calendar other than Christmas and Easter, but uh, I said in the, in the church calendar there are seven Sundays in Easter. And so there are seven Sundays to sing all of those those wonderful hymns. And and this fellow looked at me like I had invented fire or something. He said, really, you know? So um, today's the third Sunday in Easter. And during this, uh, there are seven Sundays in Easter, and then there's Pentecost and Trinity Sunday. And for these Sundays up through Trinity Sunday, we're looking at some texts from the gospel according to St. John, starting with the Easter appearances, the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to the disciples. And then uh, as we sort of, uh, I mean, it may seem a bit random, but we'll be working our way back uh, towards some of the themes that are announced in the uh, resurrection appearances of Jesus to his disciples. John's Gospel is very different from the rest of them and it would, it's beyond uh, our concern this morning to list them all. But one that's uh, significant for our text this morning is that the gospel of John ends with a fish story, un- unlike any of the other gospels. So uh, I didn't bring my little clicker up with me. So if we could have the scripture text up on the, the uh, screen and we'll be reading from John uh, chapter 21. We'll read the first part of, uh, of this chapter up through verse 14. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. So these are post resurrection appearances. Uh, And of course, one of the deep questions that John is always wrestling with is uh, recognizing the Lord. How do we know that uh, the Lord is among us? And at this point, they're they're in a boat, uh, a couple hundred, you know, two football fields from the shore. But someone, you know, the voice carries over the water and they, they can't see who it is. So in they're like, in, in many ways, they're like the, uh, the man born blind who is healed uh, by Jesus. And then he's asked, to, you know, later on, uh, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he? So that he, the man born blind is someone who comes to faith, but he hasn't seen. He doesn't see an, until... Uh, Uh, after he is healed. And here are the disciples in a similar situation. Jesus is there, but they can't see him. But he, he tells them to put the net down on the other side of the boat, and they can't pull the net in. It's so full of fish. And at that point, though they haven't seen him, they don't know who it is. But when that happens, then they know. They know that it's the Lord. So let's continue with the text When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. I apologize, I said two football fields, it was just one football field, but still it's uh, it's between three and six in the morning and it's a long distance away. So they, they can't recognize Jesus by sight. Well, the um, the text that we have before us today is one that has always intrigued not just students of John's Gospel, but I think uh, anyone who reads through the Gospels. uh, Perhaps the the most common reaction to the scripture that we've just read is that people immediately sort of descend into legalism. Uh, We're told that the the, uh, disciples go fishing. There's seven of them, they go fishing. And this is right after or at least not long after Jesus has appeared to them, uh, already two times, but he has told them, as the Father sent me, so send I you, and he breathes the Spirit upon them. And it just seems odd to some people that with with that sort of uh, uh, indication of the Lord's purpose for their lives that they decide to go fishing. And so there's a lot, of, you know, there's a lot of back and forth about was this a good thing or a bad thing? And of course, the text doesn't say. It doesn't say uh, they decided to go fishing, and then and this was a, a turning their backs on their commission, or uh, we're not told. We're just told the story. They go fishing. The early church fathers were really fascinated with this. And and by the way, if uh, Probably a lot of you, for example, in Sunday school or Bible school might, might have learned a song, you know, I will make you fishers of men if you will follow me. And most people, you think about the Gospels and you think about the disciples. You, ah, the disciples, they were fish, The first ones, anyway, they were fishers. They were fishermen. And the first disciples in Matthew, Mark, and Luke who are called, they're, they're fishing. And Jesus calls them. In John's Gospel, this is the first fish story. And now, of course, John was one of the first disciples. He was, you know, the brother of James, the sons of Zebedee. Uh, He and and his brother were partners with Peter and Andrew in a fishing business. But when John tells the story of Jesus, he doesn't tell any fish stories until the end. In his gospel, you have this sort of afterward to the gospels. Like a a lot of novels you might read, you, you get through the the burden of the story and everything's resolved, but there's some a little afterward where there's some unfinished business or something else that you might, uh, the reader might want to know about. So the, the church fathers were fascinated that the Gospel of John ends with a fish story rather than having a fish story early on. And one of the great expositors and teachers of the church says this about our passage. So what, what's, this, what's the meaning of this passage? This is a great mystery in the the great gospel of John, and to commend it the more forcibly to our attention, the last chapter has been made its place of record. So this particular father of the church says that uh, there's a great mystery in the gospel of John, and John has saved it for the end. And it's the mystery of fishing, the mystery of fishing, but he'll explain in a minute what that's about. Accordingly, inasmuch as there were seven disciples taking part in that fishing, Peter and Thomas and Nathaniel and the two sons of Zebedee and two others whose names are withheld, they point by their septenary number, septenary is seven, there are seven of them, to the end of time, for there is a revolution of all time in seven days. To this also pertains the statement that when the morning was come, Jesus stood on the shore for the shore likewise is the limit of the sea and and signifies therefore the end of the world. The same end of the world is shown also by the act of Peter in drawing the net to land, that is to the shore, which the Lord uh, has himself elucidated, when in a certain other place he drew his similitude from a fishing net let down into the sea, and they drew it, he said, to the shore. And in explanation of what that shore was, he added, so will it be in the end of the world. So this was uh, St. Augustine, uh, one of the greatest of the church fathers, and his explanation of the disciples going fishing is that it is a uh, an allegory, or he finds in it an allegory of the end of the world, and the fishing is about the ingathering of the church. And it is a a great multitude of really big fish, 153. If you're interested in the meaning of 153, you can find uh, St. Augustine online, and he has at least uh, two different allegorical paths to explain why the number 153 is significant there. Uh, The one I find most fascinating is that uh, Pentecost, of course, is 50, and Pentecost threefold is 150, and then you add in the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and you get 153, and that's how the fullness of the church is brought in. Well, why would I mention such a, such a thing? Uh, certainly if St. Augustine were to go to any Reformed seminary and take a preaching class and preach a sermon and say this is the meaning of my text, pro- well, he might might get a passing grade for effort, but people say, no, that can't be right. <laughs> That can't be the meaning of the text. allegory of course was a way of bringing in the truth that you know into a passage that didn't seem all that uh, instructive on the face of it uh, one, of, one of the things about uh, one of the things about preaching in our time, uh, I'm convinced is that uh, preaching preaching should model uh, an appropriate teach, uh, treatment of the text for the benefit of everyone else who is reading the Bible, so that preaching, at the very least, should exemplify or provide a pattern for how to handle the scriptures. And I think reading the history of interpretation teaches you that the most important thing to model for people is humility. Uh, it's easy from 1,700 years down the road to read St. Augustine and say, well, that's kind of amusing. And yet he's a lot closer, much closer to John's time than we are, he's not 2,000 years removed from a time that uh, where, where if we were transported there, things would be very, very different. We would have some things in common with people, but obviously people read texts differently and I think if uh, if we are to learn humility, we we uh, we read where others have been. But we also, I think, are challenged to appreciate that maybe there is maybe there's something there, more than more than just what appears to be on the surface. And certainly, if as you work through John's Gospel, he loves uh, he loves double meanings, he loves uh, symbolism. in the the stories that he chooses. So what what I would like to to focus on this morning are are just a a couple of things. The text, the text is is always a pretty good guide to what is the point, what is the point. Uh, And this passage begins with, Jesus uh, revealed himself again to his disciples. And then in verse 14, uh, this was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And this I'm reading from the uh, Christian Standard Bible, which I think is the one that you have purchased. And I'm I'm no respecter of versions. I, I always, say, if I if I think there's a better translation, I will tell you. And it's it's important here because in verse one and verse 14, the same word is used, and the word is manifested. After this, Jesus manifested himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberius, and then in verse 14, this was now the third time that Jesus manifested himself. And the, the, good new, the uh, Christian standard has revealed and then appeared, which is in the ballpark. But the same word is used there and in verse 14 in one and 14 as a kind of uh, marker of this is the section, and there's this is. Uh, The point of this section is to remind you that Jesus manifested himself three times to to his disciples. Three times, certainly uh, pointing, pointing to the veracity of the testimony. So that the disciples, they are the ones who proclaim to the rest of the world, Christ is risen, we have seen the Lord. Three times. Three times the Lord appears to the disciples, which is is meant surely to indicate that, well, it wasn't just a case of of one or two random experiences where people thought they saw something. But two or three witnesses uh, settles all things. John presents three witnesses, three times that the Lord manifests himself. And manifesting, manifesting is important because It means that the Lord is the one who undertakes this. The Lord is the one who makes this come about. And and manifesting is is different than revealing. Uh, The the, uh, Christian Standard Bible quite consistently translates this word that means to manifest something by to reveal something, but they are not quite the same. To, To reveal something in scripture is to pull back the cover it's, uh, the meaning is to uncover something so that you can see it. But to manifest is to bring it out in front of you. To manifest it is to sort of, not necessarily put it in your face, but to put it in your path. It is to, to bring it out and shine a light on it. So it, in some ways, it's a, it's a very strong form or a very strong expression of the idea of, uh, of revealing. You can, un- you can uncover something and point to it, but if it's manifest, it's brought out uh, where there is to be no doubt about it. Three times, the Lord manifests himself. And in the, the fish story, the manifestation, the, the manifestation is brought about in such a way that it, it is of special benefit to those who, unlike Thomas and and the other disciples, weren't able to to put their hand in, in the wound in Jesus' side or, you know, touch the nail prints in his hand. Jesus manifests himself by a deed of power. So at what point does John know this is the Lord when the nets are full of fish? And when you get to the end of that passage, there is this very... Uh, almost odd sounding statement it, but it, it goes to this issue of, of those who have not seen and, and yet believe because there is a comment made that no one dared to ask this person who are you? No one dared to ask that. You would not say that unless there might be some reason to put the question. In so, in so many of the Lord's uh, post-resurrection appearances people don't recognize him the two fellows on the road to Emmaus they walk the road they have dinner with him they don't recognize him until he breaks the bread and then he's gone There, there is something about Jesus resurrection body resurrection life that Even those who were with him for all those years don't recognize him immediately just by seeing him. So the very first time he appears, he comes among them, he shows them his hands and side and says, you know, it's me, and they rejoice. So that manifestation, when Jesus manifests himself, it means that Jesus, of his own initiative and of his own power uh, and of his own uh, resources, uh, makes himself seen and and, uh, and understood and recognized. And that's stronger uh, in many ways than just revealed. So that the first two settle things with the disciples. It's really Jesus. But the third one is, I think, told for our benefit. That the, the primary means at this point by which the disciples have identified the Lord is that uh, they caught all these fish. And although even as they're gathered around the fire in the, in, uh, the early light of, of dawn, what, what persuades them that this is the Lord and the reason they don't need to, to ask, though there were some who for, for whom that was almost a burning question, no one dared to ask it, because they already knew, they knew by virtue of the deed of power who this was. And I think that's meant to speak to us that uh, we may know that the the risen Lord is among us by his deeds of power and by his work in in our lives and in the affairs of the church and the affairs of nations. I'd like to to close by simply following up a little more on this uh, this matter of manifesting oneself, especially Jesus manifesting himself, because this is, this is really uh, very important to the Apostle John. This, this passage, the, the main character, of, it, of course, is Peter, and next Sunday we'll talk about Peter. Uh, and because there are three more, so this is the third resurrection appearance, or third appearance after the resurrection and there Jesus will have a conversation with Peter and ask him three times if he loves him. Peter is, uh, he's just, uh, he leaps out of the boat. He loves the Lord, it's, it's pretty, he's drawn to the Lord, he can't wait to see the Lord. Uh, and we'll, we'll, next Sunday I'll talk a little bit about zeal. But you see as, as the narrative unfolds and the three questions about do you love me, make it plain that although Jesus really values zeal, the most important thing he values in his disciples is do you love me? That's the, that's the question Peter has to wrestle with and we'll wrestle with that a little bit next Sunday. But in, in John's uh, theology, manifesting manifesting is, is crucial because it starts with the sovereignty of God in making salvation known. Salvation is not something that we stumble upon And salvation is not a commodity that we have that we can sort of, uh, you know, nail it down, lock it up here in the church and say, we've got it, you know, come in and get it. We've got it nailed down here. Uh, Jesus manifests himself, and that is of his his doing and his choosing and his timing. He does this in his sovereign love. One of the great things... uh, for uh, interpreting John's gospel is that uh, John wrote a letter and in that letter he builds on these key ideas and so if you if you turn to 1st John chapter 1 verse 1 what was from the beginning what we have heard what we have seen with our eyes what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life that life was manifested and we have seen and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and that was manifested to us. The, the uh, Christian Standard Bible translates both of those with, with revealed, but it's this idea. It isn't just uncovered. It's, it's brought out where, you know, big as life and, and the light of God is shined on it. John says, this is what happened to us, that God manifested the word of life to us. When was that manifested? It was when the, when the word of life rose from the grave and manifested himself three times, to put things beyond doubt, to the apostles, at least three times. Uh, so that's the first part. He John chapter, 1 John 1:1 goes back to these post- resurrection appearances of Jesus, where Jesus manifests himself to his disciples. And then if you uh, go on in the letter to chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 28, this is the end of chapter 2, so Jesus manifested himself after His uh, when he rose from the dead, appeared to the disciples, manifested himself in chapter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, John says, So now little children remain in him, so that when he appears, it's manifested. When he is manifested, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So that the, the Lord who, appear, who was manifest, who manifested himself, after he rose from the dead, he will manifest himself again. He will show himself again. And that that belongs to the timing of the father, of course. And so uh, that being the case, if you know that he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right, uh, who does uh, what is right, has been born of him. So there is... In 1 John, you have the reference to his, Jesus manifesting himself after the resurrection, and he will manifest himself again at the end of the age. Uh, and then in chapter three, verse two, dear friends, we are God's children now. When Jesus called to his disciples from the shore uh, to the boat, he uses the, the word uh, that means children. Uh, some translations have it uh, as guys, or, but it's little children. John uses that language uh, throughout his first letter. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been manifested. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So that in First John, you have a movement from Manifestation after Jesus rises to his manifestation when he comes again and then to us. What, what will our manifestation be? That, that hasn't been made manifest yet, but we know this, that when he appears, we will be like him and we will see him as he is. And therefore, if you, uh, if you have that hope, Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So that our manifestation, as we wait for him, we hope, uh, we hope when, uh, when he is manifest, what we will be will be manifest. And, and our hope is that we will be like him. In fact, we know that we will be like him. And how do we begin to live into that now? that we, we can live into a, a holiness of life. We can live into a, a, a repentant life. We can live into a life which is Christ-like in its turning away from evil and doing what is good. Lord, write these words on our hearts. We thank you that Christ has been manifest to his disciples, the very first ones, We thank you that someday he will be manifest to everyone and that those who have put their hope in him will be manifest and be made like unto him. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that as we ponder these words that are fuller of meaning than we fully grasp and invite us to meditate, invite us to ponder uh, realities that go beyond our imagination. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would uh, direct us to Christ uh, the Lord whose glory was revealed in grace and truth. And as uh, we desire and long for that day when we will reach our true identity and our our fullness of humanity in Christ likeness, we pray for the grace to emulate him in the, the call to life that Uh, rejects evil, and turns to what is good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.